this is like a, a journey to the like underworld of math, mega math, anti math. I like anti math, dark math. That's cool. That's Isn't a cool it? idea. But it's just like forbidden math, basically. <laughs> I mean, it seems like a fantasy idea. It's like a fantasy world, uh-huh. right? Where everything is science and math, but then there's a like a class of dark mathematicians. Okay, what do they do? They do forbidden math. Gonna have a lot of fun. Gonna hit a hum run. And the littlest league possible. In the littlest league possible. Gonna Hello and welcome once again to Tater Tots Classic Flavor Uh, (laughs) like Original uh, Yeah, original original recipe Original recipe Uh, I'm Tim I'm Duncan And later on we'll be talking about uh, a single baseball player Uh, uh, in this case The Tater Tot King, kind of Uh, former Cub, Cardinal, and White Sox (laughs) Don Kessinger we need to address briefly the failure, and we probably talked about this a little bit, but the failure of um, names like White Sox and Red Sox to address the fact that... Sometimes there are singular baseball players. Right, who are Cubs or Cardinals. But yeah. Like, Often call- I will address this issue by referring to an individual on any team by the plural. Right. It's probably... The closest thing to correct like i'm thinking about that x and like the purpose that the x serves in place of the cks and i think the idea is that if you're a singular like you can't mm-hmm. the team is the socks and to suggest that i and this is complete speculation there's no i have no evidence to support this but I think the suggestion is that the mascot is like a pair of the socks. So each individual, like, whereas if you're playing for the Cubs, then you're just like one one of the Cubs, you're one Cub. But if you're playing for the White Sox, like, you wouldn't be one. Yes. You wouldn't be represented by one sock. No, because the implication isn't that there are 30 socks. Right. It's that there are two socks. Well, no, no, no. My thing is that you... So, like, okay, again, like, for the Cubs as an example, if you were to take the nickname as being literal, you would think of the team as being, like, 30 or whatever bear Cubs. 30 Cubs wandering around playing baseball. On a yes. baseball field. Normal. The the analogy would have to be not 30 individual socks, which which is how you would get to being like, oh, yeah, he was a white sock. But he's not a he's a pair of white socks because that's the full representation of the oh so you think it's thirty pairs of socks yeah which is why it, right it's unclear you can't like you can't make it a singular sock because that's that's an incomplete representation of the individual because they're supposed to individually represent pairs of socks is my current theory and they wear pairs of socks that's right I mean ultimately grammatically we tend to treat the x as just a cute stand-in for a a cks well yeah but i think that 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 like i think it functions in a particular way because Mm -hmm. if it were cks then one individual would be a sock a white sock absolutely but you you just can't morally shorten it to s-o-c-k because i mean where are you getting that from 
Right, because then that, like, suggests that each... And then you have an odd number of socks because it's a 25-man roster, so would you rather have 25 socks or 25 pairs of socks? I mean, thankfully, there are 30 people on each roster this year, so you can have, you know, 15 pairs of socks now. The one silver lining of the pandemic is that the Red Sox and the White Sox have, uh, you know, an, an even number of socks on their team. I mean, the fact is that this is all utter nonsense. I mean, how dare you? <laughs> Sorry. Um, I had a brief update for jumping. It's not a good update. It's a bad update, uh, which is that this week I was only able to muster a 100-inch jump. Um, this is down from last week's 101 and three-quarters inch jump. Yeah, it's been disappointing. I keep hitting my foot against the wall, and it really hurts, and it's making me shy. Like, both of my toes, like, both of my big toenails at this point are cracked and have bled. Because I just keep running into this wall at full speed, and it's kind of making me shy. And also, I didn't have a good workout week, and I'm making excuses, but that's that you know that's the nature of the beast. I feel like maybe your system of measurement is getting in the way it's, of your jumping progress. I don't disagree with you. Could you find a basketball hoop, or just a basketball backboard? It doesn't have to have a hoop attached, and chalk mark on the backboard. Uh, as long as you can touch it, that's good enough. And then you can run straight at it and not be running into a wall because presumably the basketball hoop is not directly adjacent to a wall. No, I would imagine not. I think I might have to try that uh, this week and see see what results come of it. Um, yeah, because it's really... I am literally and figuratively hitting a wall. That's a funny joke. I like that. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. I do. That sounded sarcastic. Um, I think it was a clever construction. <laughs> um, before we broke uh, last time, you said um, you, uh, that you're going to get swole over the past two weeks. You've yeah. given me a big thumbs down. Yeah, it went poorly. Uh, I broke my bike a couple of times, which was kind of discouraging. Mm-hmm. Uh, I almost fainted in the shower one morning I was working out. Are you eating enough? Probably not, honestly. I probably should eat more and better. Fair enough. We'll see how the basketball hoop experiment goes. Um, and by next week, you're going to be at 105, I think. Okay, now, of course, we need to uh, transition to our main sort of improvement, the, the like self-improvement that we've taken upon ourselves, the, that segment, you know? Uh, <laughs> it's currently that we're adding some integers to our integral. Uh, and there's music here. Uh, you started on edX. Yeah, you recommended that I um, move away from Coursera, and I did. And you know it's been uh, it's been a, a complex relationship I've had with edX, but ultimately I'm happy I landed there. Um, what I did was I enrolled in their pre-calculus course, and they said, "Listen, we're yeah. going to have you take a comprehensive quiz to determine what your uh, foundational knowledge is." And I said, "Well, that seems like a smart way to do this." Yeah. Uh, and I took the quiz, and it said, "All right." Um, it took a long time. It was like a forty-five minute quiz. Wow said you are deficient in like uh, 400 areas of math and i oh said that's reasonable <laughs> uh so instead of working on pre-calculus now i'm going back through all of math not all of math it starts at like i don't know eighth grade uh-huh. i'm going through like all of math since eighth grade and um just reviewing it 
So I'm no longer working on anything related to calculus at all, but I am doing a lot of algebra and stuff. Um, That's good. I think it's excellent. Like it's further from the goal of this, which is um, to add an integer to an integral. I'll know that (laughs) I've accomplished something when I do that. Um, But it is good. It's like a lot. I mean, maybe it's bad because I'm less frustrated by it, but I do feel like I'm learning and um, deepening the grooves in my brain. So I think, you know, as I said here, I'm always on a voyage of self-improvement and I think I'm moving faster here than I was before. I think that that's a positive thing. I mean, like I've, I've been in the same boat with this introduction to geometry, which is to say that like I'm getting through stuff pretty quickly because the fundamentals of geometry are, are pretty simple arithmetic stuff, basically. And mm-hmm. It's just like more about recalling the concepts that make it geometry. Um, but I, I find sort of I, I'm, I've been getting some satisfaction out of arriving at units that then start to offer me some pushback um, because it feels like the 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 climb has felt quicker and now that i'm like arriving at the challenging bits like it just feels scaled almost mm-hmm. if that makes sense in a way that i feel like in courses that i've tried on coursera i think that the, the thing might be that that's specifically for like university level courses and at that point you're supposed to have already made this climb kind of um and yeah uh or or like had recently made the climb and so now you're like okay university level um but the truth is that I'm not ready for university level math. I took one university level math in my career and I was really bad at it. It feels good to be working at a pace that's challenging, but not uh, completely demoralizing. Yeah, I totally agree. I appreciate that they have a robot um, helping me. So it's mm-hmm. not, you know, I'm not uh, going according to a pre-prescribed um, plan it is working with me to determine what I do and don't know and then finding out what I'm worse at and working those things specifically. Uh, so I think that's pretty cool. And in a way, I think maybe robots are better teachers than human people. Um, oh, well, what makes you say that? Um, robots have infinite patience. Yes. You know, you never feel like you're letting a robot down. Yeah. Robots can ingest a lot of information at a time and compare it to a large database those are the two things you know i don't can i i want to i want to go back before you respond i think robots might be better teachers for committed adults you know i think children need human teachers but if i already know that i want to learn something i do appreciate having a a personalized robot teacher i feel like if you know that you want to learn something you might also like i'm like and i think that if you know that you want to learn something and you just want to learn it and get through it it's probably Mm -hmm. good but i feel like you know, if you know that you want to learn something, you would probably get even more out of it by going to a person and saying, listen, I'm enthusiastic about this and then getting them to also be enthusiastic about it. I think you're totally right. I think well, uh, really what I like about the robot is that it's not a pre-recorded uh, person who just delivered a couple of 10 minute lectures and said, no, uh, do these tests. I agree with you. I definitely like I, I also appreciate having a track rather than having to like adjust my learning style to fit like the th- the, the teaching style mm-hmm. for my purpose mean, it's the same purposes basically which is just that like I know that I want to learn this and I know that I want to go through the track and I really appreciate edX for having this like track set up where it's just like um okay here's the concept 
And, like, if you're not ready to face this concept, like, you can go back, like, here are the concepts that we've already covered that you can specifically go back to and refresh mm-hmm. uh, before coming up on this one. Yeah. Um, it's a nice little rhythm. I like, I mean, I like learning on it. As I've mentioned, I'm, I'm doing, um, I'm getting to some challenging points in my learning. I've learned some concepts that I don't know that I've learned um, before. You're going deep on triangles, which is something that I think we discussed. Yeah. Actually, maybe it was on our Twitch stream that we went deep on triangles, uh, but we discussed how they're the strongest uh, shape. I think that was here. Okay. I can't, I can't sure. remember. I may have, it may have been something that was edited out at some point, or maybe it was. It doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, mm, yeah, big fan of triangles. Mm. Um. Oh, that's the other problem with this robot, in my opinion, is that it, it, the kind of the way that it, it advances is that there are some times where like you'll interact with a shape to like, expl- like to visualize the concepts that it's teaching you. Yeah. Um, and the concept that it was teaching me earlier was that a triangle has three angles that are made up of uh, exactly 180 degrees. Yes. Um, and it would, it did this thing where it would put a triangle in front of me and be like, here, play with this triangle, like move the vertices around so you can see how the angles change and try to make a triangle whose angles add up to more than 180 degrees. It um, can't be done. That's what, that's what I guess it's like expecting you to like, or that's like, it's trying to like bring you to that realization on your own through this visualization. Yeah, um, I like that. I think that's cool. That's neat. The way that it does it is that it, so it gives you the triangle to interact with and then it gives you two buttons to click on, one of which says, I have found a triangle whose angles are <laughs> more than 180 degrees and another one that just says like it can't be done or something like that and i did not click on the the one that says i found one because i like i already know the thing i like trust you that that a triangle can't be more than 180 degrees in its angles and i can't imagine that clicking this thing would like offer me anything but it it offered i me appreciate th- that i pre- you know I appreciate that it gives you a lot of choices. It did, and it gave me, like, more than, like, I mean, it doesn't give you a lot of choices. It gives you one choice that's, like, try to live in this universe that's not real, that's a complete fantasy, or, like, accept reality so we can move on. So you select the accept reality and move on option, and Mm -hmm. I think it maybe teaches you one more thing, and then it goes back to this thing and is like, okay, try one more time to, like, break reality again. Uh before you have to admit that it can't be done to move on. Um, I mean, what if you discovered a triangle whose angles added up to more than 180 degrees? I mean, the the robot simply wouldn't believe you. Uh, <laughs> hmm? <laughs> I don't know. It's a very well-established fact that a triangle has three angles. That it, and, like, the other thing that I did, like, the, probably the biggest deal... I So one thing that, like, I was kind of intimidated, was nervous about having to work on in this course was proofs because I've always been bad at proofs. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the first proof that that was covered in this course is the proof of the the triangle having three angles that equal 180 degrees. An admirable proof if you can prove it. And uh, I can now. Excellent. Yeah. Um, Which is, I mean, like I said, it was was, was scary to to know that it was coming up. Yeah. Came up, focused up on it step by step didn't try to bite off too much at one time mm-hmm. and, you know proved proved that theorem 
But again, what if you did discover a triangle whose angles added up to more than 180 degrees? Well, that's what I'm saying is that that's that's ultimately what I'm saying is that I learned a way. I learned the way to prove that that is impossible. What if you disprove that proof? But you can't. I mean, this is a challenge to you. But you can't. It's been so proven. by next week, I want you to jump 110 inches and prove that some <laughs> triangles can have um, angles summing to more than 180 degrees. Those are my I'm two challenges you, to you. I'm telling you that neither of those things can be done. I mean, this is why you'll never be the world's most notorious and renowned mathematician. <laughs> slash basketball dunker. I, like, I could, <laughs> uh, there's no, I like, I, this is, hmm. Mm, it's just a challenge that I'm unable to meet because I have learned the proof. I've accepted the proof is reality, and I, I I'm not ready to try to break reality right now. I'm at a, I, I appreciate and I embrace the facts of geometry for what they are. I'm not I'm not trying to challenge that. Mm, okay, well that's where you are on your journey right now. Someday you'll be the world's most renowned and feared notorious mathe- <laughs> notorious mathematician. Yes. <laughs> Not afraid of any pre- I'll you know I'll, I'll I'll undo geometry bit by bit smash that wall until uh, uh, there are triangles that are made up of 630 degrees that'd be a great triangle I'd love to see it Wes let's fuss let's 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 blow the cobwebs off the old tot stove fire up the fire up the burners we got baseball back we have to talk about it regrettably where should we start? Your segues just keep getting better. I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> um, they, uh, baseball is here. The regular regular season baseball, yeah, has arrived. Yeah, uh, eventfully. Um, yeah, <laughs> I think not that on. the I think that Juan Soto probably had a false positive COVID test. We were very nervous about that. It seemed like right before baseball was going to start, it was going to end. Um, because uh, National Superstar Juan Soto tested positive for COVID, but uh, it seems like it might have been a false positive. So that's good. Um, It seems like at least things aren't grinding to a halt uh, after one singular game. Well, wait, did you hear about Jose Arena yet? This happened today. Okay, Uh, I I was not looking. Jose Arena was supposed to make a start against the Phillies today. Arena, Urena from the... Arena? I don't remember. From the Marlins? Arena, yeah. Uh, was supposed to make a start against the Phillies today and tested positive. Mm. Uh, and it was a late scratch. I guess missed a start. Uh, Jorge Alfaro, Garrett Cooper, Harold Ramirez, and Jose Arena uh, have tested positive for COVID out of Miami. Oh God! Um, <laughs> oh no! Wait, all was that all today? Okay, I've I've found this. John, John Heyman. Yes. Okay. So indeed, three. The starting position player, starting players, including Urania, Urena. Oh, that's positive too. Have I mean, tested positive to. as of today. Okay. Um, this is very bad news for baseball in the Marlins. Not totally shocking considering uh, Florida. how Florida is. Yeah. Um, but that that could be really bad. Like you know, if if there is an outbreak on one team, it destroys the whole enterprise because if you pull a team out of the league, it you know, then what do you do next? Do you make every team that plays against them win automatically? That's obviously not fair. I I really think that they should not be shy about just, like, blowing up the structure of this season. And they already have done that kind of with expanded playoffs. Um, Yeah, I did want to touch on this. We can, I mean, we can make that transition now because I feel like 
yeah broad broadly speaking i think that they should not be shy about just like whatever turning this into because it's already not real like we already have to put asterisks after everything that happens this season uh so like they might as well just make it like a tournament with no real stakes and just like let people play who want to play and let everybody sit who wants to sit um yeah and i mean that's as as i mentioned before i prefer this season to look nothing like a regular major league baseball season and i think that these expanded playoffs have moved toward that so i went back and forth originally when i heard that they were expanding the playoffs to 16 teams and now where i where i've come down is just that i think this makes it more like a tournament it makes it feel less serious i also think this is significant the fact that they announced that they were changing the way the playoffs work like 15 minutes before the season started, it felt very unserious. And I'm sure that's not what they were going for, but it really hammered home that like, don't take this season seriously. We're going to make this kind of a change on the same day that the season starts. This is fundamentally separate from real baseball. I just feel they should keep doing that. Like as yeah. the season unfolds, just keep announcing more and more ridiculous conditions <laughs> to like you know next week's slate of games you 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 have to play with your opposite hand and just right. like keep keep throwing weird uh complications that would be fantastic i mean that's one of the fun things about this season just that keeping i don't spicy. feel like they're fully exploring but like if you're gonna goof it just goof it all the way try a bunch of wacky stuff that is fully my perspective okay so now we can just let's like just open up the conversation at large about these past couple of days baseball the new season is like three days old Yep. Um, at this point, um, so we can I just like let's talk about first impressions. Personally, I cannot watch more than one inning at a time before I have to turn it off. Every square inch of baseball coverage, like relating to this season, makes me so sad. I cannot stand it. Cause like, okay, so the first thing is there are no fans in the bleachers. True. Um, which is a constant reminder that this is not regular. It's not. Uh, They're playing in a global pandemic. People are not allowed to be at the stadium for a particular reason, and that reason is the end of the world. I really like the virtual fans that Fox Fox Sports is doing uh, virtual fans, which is an idea that I like in theory because from, from what I've seen of it, it's just enough of like a backdrop to convince me that what's happening is what's always happened. It should, in theory accomplish what bringing baseball back wants to accomplish which is to distract from all of the nonsense that's going on right um and if like you know if there were virtual stands and virtual fans in every shot then it would be like oh yeah it's baseball again like nothing's different about it it feels like like it would just feel regular before i had to for a couple of hours a the fact that there are no fans in the bleachers but b (laughs) which is like especially damning which is like the practice of the virtual fans which is that they're only in some shots like it's, it makes it stand out even more as something weird that's going on. I think that the reason that the virtual fans are only in certain shots is to try to make them seem more natural because the, the fans are not very high resolution and you can understand they're trying to render them live and right. tracking the motion of the camera. Like it's a difficult technical process they're trying to achieve. Sure. And if they were in every shot, often you would notice that they look uh, like trash. So I, th- I think the idea is they're really at the periphery of shots hopefully you won't even notice them. I didn't find that especially successful, um, but I also don't have the same perspective on this season as you do. I mean, 
I think that what you're saying about making it goofy stands in contrast to what you seem to want out of baseball. Like, and maybe I'm misinterpreting, but it seems like you're saying if you are to watch sports right now, what you would want out of it is a distraction, not a reminder about COVID, but something that feels like something that would be normal in any other year. I either either something that would be normal in any other year or something that is just so like something that's literally a distraction that's so off the wall and like you can't help but not look at. Like I need I need a reason to be invested in what's going on. Yeah. Beyond the normal reasons that I have because the normal reasons are for normal circumstances. I need personally I feel that I need something that like elevates the game on television, the product that's being presented to me as an audience member that like elevates my motivation for engaging in it. And like, if it were like a 16 team tournament and it was like, you know, we're going to do this for two weeks or a month just so, you know, the players can play and everybody can have a little break. That would be something, right? Because I would be like, uh, these are special circumstances. We're being given a special product. It's just very confusing to me. It just, it's just not doing what I feel like they want it to do for me. Mm hmm. Ultimately, um, every commercial is about how, like, great it is that baseball's back and how, like, during these trying times, we really need baseball. I gotta tell you, my favorite commercial is the Applebee's commercial. Oh, um, God. Because it is so oh, just, God. like, mean. It's a very flagrant and weird commercial. The Applebee's <laughs> commercial is just, like, to quote it directly, uh, COVID is over. It's yeah. time to go back to Applebee's and yeah. ignore any other problems that you might have. It's time to dine in again and not wear a mask, Applebee's. And that's okay. I think that that's like ultimately my issue with what's being attempted here is that they're trying to give me a product that's simultaneously tailored to the fact that we're not out of the woods, yep. but, they're, but they're also trying to be like, we're out of the woods and now we can have baseball back. I haven't actually watched a lot of cardboard cutout, so I don't know what that's like. The cardboard uh, cutouts are um, better or worse. Uh, <laughs> they're fun. I mean, they have full size dogs and babies, which is funny because they're next to full size people. <laughs> so the implication is that the baby is like twenty five feet tall. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's funny. Maybe that <laughs> honestly, maybe that would do it. Cause like I'm saying, like if the virtual fans were in every shot, I'd be like, yeah, it's weird, but it kind of looks okay. Right. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's what I need in terms of weirdness. Well, here's regular baseball news, not really related to the pandemic, which is that Mookie Betts signed himself a long-term deal with the Los Angeles Dodgers. I hate it. <sighs> Anything else? Uh, I don't like it. Okay. Um, it upsets me. Yeah. Moogie Betts is one of the best players in baseball. Yeah. And he signed a 13-year extension with the Dodgers. Yeah. Um, and so now I don't like Mookie Betts, which is a problem. Because you do like Mookie Betts. Yeah. He's a professional bowler. He's small, but he's good. Yeah. Uh, but uh, now I notice that he uh, he always complains about the strike zone. So I'm making my way there. You know, I have to learn to dislike this guy who's so intensely likable. I want to challenge you yeah. to reserve some space in your head for to respect Mookie Betts as like an athlete and stuff. 
while still intensely despising what he stands for. Sure. I mean, I'm not going to... I'm going to try and not dislike him as a person. I don't think that I usually do that for Dodgers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't even... I think that what I'm talking about is something different, and it's a kind of a unique and sort of challenging thing uh, that I've I've come across as a sports fan, which is that... I mean, Jerry Seinfeld has said, and uh, Jim Lu- uh, uh, Paul Lucas of, of UniWatch has also espoused the point of view that when you root for a sports team, you're just rooting for laundry. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can, you can, as a sports fan, you can develop like very intense feelings about that laundry, of course. Um, like we all agree that that's true. Like I have, I feel some type of way about Cardinals. You feel some type of way about Dodgers. Everybody feels some type of way about like their team's rival. And I think that it is detrimental ultimately to a fan. I think that I get more out of my experience as a fan when I can look past my feelings for the team that I don't like and what they collectively represent as an obstacle to the team that I do like and get to a place where I can be like, yeah, but like, man, Mookie Betts is like still so much fun to watch. Like as an athlete, like it's a real treat that I get to watch him play baseball today. Mm -hmm. I hear you. And I don't, again, I I don't dislike, personally dislike Mookie Betts and I can certainly appreciate uh, the good Dodgers team aesthetically. For me, so much of the value that I find in sports is in rooting for a team. I'm not mm-hmm. like particularly naturally inclined as a sports fan. I'm competitive, but I, I just kind of fell into baseball for whatever reason as a kid and got really into it. It's always been a lot more work to me to pay attention to other kinds of sports. Um, and so what I mean, what really helps me is having a strong rooting interest. That's the reason mm-hmm. I was able to get into the KBO too. Yeah, I understand that. I think that if that is what it is, then it probably is more helpful to have a rooting against interest. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's fun. Yeah, sure. I don't know. Sports are weird. That's true. They probably shouldn't be doing them right there now in America because of the yeah. pandemic. Yeah. The uh, uh, Toronto Blue Jays aren't even able to play baseball in the right stadium. Uh, they had a whole kerfuffle trying yep. to figure out where they were allowed to play. They tried to play right. in Canada, and Canada said, um... No, thank you. No. And then they tried to play <laughs> in uh, Pittsburgh, and Allegheny County said, No. I don't know. I'm not sure. And then they tried to play in Camden Yards, um, and I think the state of Maryland was like, No, I don't think so. So now they're going to play in their AAA stadium in Buffalo, but it's not ready yet. It doesn't have the right lighting or replay equipment. So for the time being, they're going to play their home games at uh, opposing stadiums, which is fun. You know what I just thought of? And I don't know if I'm the only person who's ever thought about this, but they play Major League Baseball at the single-A stadium in Williamsport. Um, yep, 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 yep. For the Little League Classic. And I wondered if they considered that, because that would probably be set up for Major League Baseball at this point. In fact, the reason they're able to do that is because they truck in all the equipment for that series. Oh, oh, oh. It is rented. So they're just going to have to truck it into Baltimore is what they're going to do. I mean, Buffalo. Um, I'm not sure. It seems like they should probably just install it permanently. I don't understand why AAA stadiums aren't set up with major league quality lighting and stuff. It seems strange to me. Well, they have to do like... I mean, I assume that they're what they're specifically concerned about is like Statcast and and instant replay and stuff like that. Instant replay, yes. I mean, Statcast they have installed in AAA stadiums. I think it has oh. to do with the cameras, the the TV broadcast. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I think it's funny that they, <laughs> they're having such trouble finding a house and that they didn't deal with this until the season actually started. It doesn't seem like anybody really thought this was going to happen. It yeah. still kind of seems like they don't. <laughs> I, I mean, mean it's, it's the same. It's the same as baseball announcing the playoff structure like 15 minutes before the season. The Blue Jays are like, I guess we have to deal with having a home stadium. Yeah. They're yeah, not taking it seriously. Uh, this last thing that is in the Tot Stove segment, uh, do you think we should talk about because it, it, it is, it does tie back to all the stuff that we've already talked about is the Steven Strasburg wrist injury, uh, which doesn't seem to be a major thing. Um, but Steven Strasburg also has identified that this season isn't real. I, I thought this was a very telling quote. He was just yeah. talking about his wrist injury. He said, I'm not extremely concerned. I don't think it will keep me out for too long, but to be frank, this season is kind of a mess to begin with. I've got to think about the big picture. To me, what that says is he has clued into the fact that this does not matter as much as normal baseball. Consequently, he's not as pressured to play. If every Steven Strasburg, because every baseball team has roughly one Steven Strasburg sure. or like analogous player to Steven Strasburg. And if like, let's say that like even 10% of those players have like minor injuries and are like, <laughs> I'm just not going to play. <laughs> like what happens to the quality the quality of it's it no i don't know i won't i won't watch that product if you know steven strasberg and noah Syndergaard, whoever like those guys that like you kind of sort of watch baseball for if they're all like Meh. i thought it was going to be worth it but i don't you know want to turn a minor wrist injury into serious problems for my long term over a 60 game season that like no one's going to respect in the future yeah I thought the homework was optional. <laughs> uh, let's move on to the, we're back to uh, our regular programming sort of uh, being that we're back to baseball sort of uh, and talking about historic tater tots. We are shaking things up and trying to, I think we're just doing like the best ofs kind of best of being in like lots and lots of scare quotes. Although we probably could do like, best tater tots by war and really talk about the best ofs we could try something like that i think we're winging it for now there are only like three weeks of baseball this year so (laughs) you know last time we had a long time to kind of go we were going chronologically we got through a lot of players i don't know we'll figure it out yeah uh but presently the plan is to talk through Right, right now we're on uh, 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 most tater tot seasons that is to say most seasons in careers in which a player hit exactly one home run. Mm-hmm. There is a tie among position players. Uh, so this week we've selected one of those position players whose name is Don Kessinger. Uh, there's also a standalone champion of the tater tots uh, pitchers category uh, that I guess we'll get to next time. Um, we'll get we'll, sh- we'll get to him in the future. I'm not sure who we'll do next time. Maybe we'll time. Sh- sh- shake it up again. Uh, but for now, uh, our title of the week is uh, Chicago Cub legend and minor legend of the White Sox, if not the Cardinals. I didn't really get the sense that his time with the Cardinals was too substantial. No. Um, um, presumably because he was a Cub uh, for so long. That probably made that relationship a little bit awkward. Sure. Um, and that's, this is We're talking about Don Kessinger. You know him, you love him. You know him, you love him. He's eight times a tater tot. Uh, out of the same era as the other uh, co-king of the position player tater tots, Jim Wolford. Jim Wolford, he's not actually that interesting. 
<laughs> no offense. Uh, uh, but yeah, it is kind of interesting to note that Wolford and Kessinger were contemporaneous. Mm-hmm. The, they both light hitting middle infielders uh, defense first. Uh, Jim Wolford is also credited with with coining the phrase "90% of baseball is half met- mental," which seems to just be like an apocryphal phrase that, like, authorship gets kind of passed around. You did a lot of research at my request, and um, you know, you started your research at my request, but really went a lot deeper on the era with the most tater tot players. Um, and because I had seeing that these two players were contemporaneous, um, hypothesized that maybe the 70s and 80s were the height of the tater tot. Your research suggests otherwise. It suggests kind of a steady slope downwards from the beginning of baseball until now, which I thought was was very interesting, both as percentage of tater tots by home run hitters and percentage of tater tots by all at-bat takers. But um, what that question doesn't answer, and I think is a harder statistical question to answer, is like what era was most amenable to very light hitting players who had some other kind of qualities um, that enabled them to rack up lots of different tater tot seasons. Yeah, I don't know how to exactly answer that, but subjectively, it certainly feels like this is the era uh, where those kinds of players were highly valued. Well, I mean, really, if you want to, it feels hard not to acknowledge, you know, like the early live ball era when people were just like discovering that baseball bats were a thing that they could you know, used to their advantage. Right. Babe Ruth um, did come along and say, did you know that you can hit a home run? And they were like, poppycock. Yeah. It was um, so different back then. The period, like, you know, the advent of Babe Ruth is, I mean, actually he's like 18, right? So he, he kind of existed throughout the live ball era. But th- this period of like 20 to 29 is, as you mentioned, like both uh, highest share of plate appearance havers and uh, of home run hitters. Um by percentage the most tater tots overall that's when the fewest both the fewest amount of plate appearances were taken across the league and the fewest amount of home runs hit so it kind of stand that that would be when the highest share of tater tots would exist why it doesn't necessarily stand a reason right i mean you have a, a smaller portion of people who are hitting any amount of home runs I, I think it certainly makes sense that fewer people hit home runs uh before the live ball era especially just because people didn't hit a lot of home runs well so there was a drop obviously like it's an immediate drop and it's it's a it's a it's trending downward overall um but it did spike in the 70s and 80s mm-hmm. um whereas in the 20s from the 20s to the 30s dropped from the 30s to the 40s it dropped from the 40s to the 50s it was pretty much consistent mm-hmm. between the 50s and the and the 60s it uh, dropped a little bit again, and then between the 60s and 70s, it spiked a little bit. 70s, it was pretty uh, on an even keel for, like... Several decades. This is tots over anybody with a plate appearance. Yeah. Was pretty even between 40 and 1999. Yeah. It was, it was pretty much always between, like, 10 and almost 11%. Things um, have changed very dramatically in the past two decades. Yes, indeed, they have. So, I mean, maybe that is like, maybe it is fair to say that that was kind of the heyday for it before, you know, pitchers started getting really good and also hitters started getting really good uh, to, to match them. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of this, no surprise, is also due to the advent of advanced statistics. Like, 
you know, obviously things have developed a lot over the past decade, but even as early as the 2000s, that was when Moneyball started coming around and the relative contributions of the sorts of players like Don Kessinger started to um, be realized. And, um, you know, Don Kessinger, I'm going to struggle with Kessinger versus Kessinger. Um, I can... All right, I, you know, definitive. Don Kessinger, despite being a very long-tenured and very valued player, um, per advanced metrics, was bad. Um, you know, he was a very good defensive shortstop for most of his career, but his status as the tater tot king is telling because he had absolutely no power, and that, you know, was indicative of his entire hitting game being quite subpar. Um, and back then... People really didn't know what baseball players were worth. That's kind of right. a fun little activity to look back on how many wins people used to estimate a baseball player was worth when they really had no frame of reference. Um, so you think, hey, a solid defensive shortstop, he's going to save us 20 wins a year with the glove alone, so it's going to make that offense worthwhile. Um, and as people learned more, they stopped giving those players as much of a much of a track. There is no pronunciation guide on baseball reference for Don Kessinger slash Kessinger. We can just alternate. Yeah, so that was my plan. Very respectful. Apologies um, to Don if you're listening. The Kessing, Kessinger family. Um, I, I, like, I honestly, like, I don't know. It, it's sort of been at the periphery of my thinking about, like, the statistical analysis of Tater Tots. Because it's just, like, you know, it's there's there's probably nothing that's indicated about, like, baseball as a larger entity that's, you know, in the statistical analysis of the tater tots, but... I think this is something, this is the closest we've come to, like, interesting baseball research. (laughs) (laughs) We started this show, there was, like, we had some idea, we were like, we have to find a reason that the tater tot as a category of player is interesting or meaningful, and overall I think we failed at that, except in this narrow category, which is, like... It has to do with the the value of players who are not very valuable. Well, it's meaning meaningful in like an actual like statistical research sense. You know, meaning is cheap. You can you can make up a meaning for anything. And to that extent, you know, we did do that. Um, we just haven't really stuck to it that well. Uh, that's okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In the middle of all this, it's uh, Don Kessinger, Donald, Yulon, Kessinger. Kessinger. His whole name is kind of a disaster. If completely. I, I also tried to do some research this morning behind the name of Yulon, um, and it's completely shrouded in mystery. It's like the 3,459th most popular baby name of 1949, which was seven years after uh, Kessinger's birth. Oh, a pioneer. So, <laughs> if anyone knows I anything guess. about E-U-L-O-N, please let us know. There doesn't really just anything to know. Like I really tried to look. At, I looked at like three or four different baby name sites to see if I could find any kind of information about like its meaning, even <laughs> and couldn't. It just seems like it's a name that emerged from the ether. Somebody like put some letters together and decided that it was, would be a good name, uh, for you know, light hit, good glove shortstops from Arkansas. Don Kessinger was born in Arkansas. True. Uh, I like that. Good start. Uh, thank you for city. Arkansas, mm. to be to be particular, and uh, a consummate athlete. If there ever was one, I believe he was a four sport athlete in high school and was all all American in baseball and basketball uh, during his time at Old Miss in the sixties. He considered he considered going pro uh, for basketball, but he decided that baseball was going to be a better long term investment, which 
props to him. I think he was right. Yeah, I mean, he's a lifer. He's one of the guys who, like, after... That's another thing that I feel like is kind of common among Tater Tots is that they tend to stick around in terms of, like, baseball career. Yeah, I think it's because they're kind of, you know, often that scrappy kind of player who makes a good coach or manager. Sometimes there there is this baseball wisdom that, again, this is something that maybe these conventions are being challenged, but there is this traditional wisdom that players who struggled and had to scrap their entire way through the big leagues make better coaches. Well, it's just, if anything, it's just a testament to the fact that, like, these are people that have found ways to make themselves valuable to the teams that they are employed by. Mm. Um, and and those those tend to be unconventional or like hard to hard to quantify tangibly um, in ways that coaching is you know it's a, it's a kind of a soft skill set uh, becoming harder like I feel like the 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 pitch framing catcher tater tot is kind of a, becoming a trend uh, in our studies yeah but yeah I mean Kessinger is one of these guys who's just like baseball lifer apparently is like committed enough to the game and was able to show his commitment to the game in a way that made people want to keep giving him jobs even after he retired well for a little bit after he retired he didn't he didn't stick in major league baseball for very long i mean i i I definitely think bill veck's opinion of him speaks highly of his character well i feel like once you've made your bones in the in the majors then it just becomes like because obviously there are only so many jobs in major league baseball period so you kind of have to get creative and Kessinger uh went on to manage uh Ole Miss baseball mm-hmm. team yeah yeah I mean I think that he's just like like I think I think he's a he's a case of a person who's just like has a skill set an athletic skill set mm-hmm. and can can spin it in ways that they need to in order to get themselves you know comfortable careers um, yeah fair enough maybe is, he could have made a, a name for himself in basketball Probably could have been a basketball coach if baseball coaching didn't work out, but it did. Uh, he was signed by the Cubs out of college as an amateur free agent in 1964. Uh, what happened before the draft? This is the year before the draft was instituted. Yeah. Is everybody just an amateur free agent? They absolutely were. This is really interesting. Yeah, the draft was instituted for baseball in 1965, so Kessinger was the last class of players uh, signed as free agents. Uh, they instituted the draft because before this, the Yankees could sign any player that they wanted to. And that was the reason they felt it necessary to institute something like that, despite the fact that it's like debatably unconstitutional. Um, but yeah, every team would just sign whatever players they wanted to, and Kessinger was among those. The Cubs said, we'll give you 25000 bucks," And he said, sure. Made the majors September 7th? Is the same year. I don't think he... Same I, year. Yeah, oh my it's, goodness. it's pretty amazing. He went straight from college. I don't know if he was a junior or a senior. It's difficult to know with older players. Um, he went straight from college to AA, and then at the end of the year, he got called up uh, to the majors. The next year, he started the year in AA. They had another shortstop that they wanted to be the starter, but by June, they said, nah, let's get Kessinger up here. Um, and that was it. He entrenched himself as the starting shortstop on the Cubs for the next 16 years or 15 years at that point. The Cubs 1965, uh, the 1965 Cubs short, starting shortstop is listed as Don Kessinger. Yeah, there was another guy at the beginning of the season whose name I don't recall. Roberto Pena. Okay. Uh, was the starting shortstop opening day, uh, 1965, before Don Kessinger swooped in and took it over, sunk his meaty claws into it, and refused to give it back for 16 seasons. Uh, well. He, 
Yes. Not all of those seasons were with the Cubs. Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. I, I don't know how many seasons he was with the Cubs. It was like 12 or 13. Uh, most most of, them. of them. Um, Yeah. Uh, as we mentioned, the very acme, the epiphany, nope, what's the word? Epitome of uh, a good field light hit. Um, is this his career line? Just uh, That was 65, um, which was the year he entrenched himself. Yeah, his batting line, 201. 201 batting average, 252 on base, 233 slugging. Pretty bad. So that, w- yeah, that was good so- for a 36 weighted runs created plus, um, meaning that he was, what, 66 per- 64% below average. Extremely bad hitter. And not even very good at defense that year, but they thought they had something there, and they, they stuck with them. <laughs> good for them. Uh, uh, his career line is 252, 314, 312. Incredible. I'm really trying to find any silver lining here, but he didn't even walk that much. Never more than 68 times in his entire career in a single season. Yeah. Plus the OBP is never very strong on its own. Uh, Never better than 351, which is 1972. He had his moments. Like, he definitely... I believe at one point he... um, was encouraged to become a switch hitter. This is, oh, pretty early in his career, 1966. So yeah, uh, in the middle of 1966, uh, the Cubs legendary manager, Leo DeRocher, uh, encouraged Kessinger to uh, pick up switch hitting, um, after which he did improve uh, his hitting uh, slightly. Mm. Yeah, pretty incredible that even in that year in which he did double his offensive value, Fangraph still pegged him at negative 1.9 wins above replacement on the air. You know, he was becoming a good defensive shortstop. He was still not excellent at that point. He did later become quite a good defensive shortstop, but his hitting was still so bad, um, improving from, what was it, a 36 WRC plus to 65, um, (laughs) that it just couldn't make up for it. Uh, Luckily, he did hit one home run that year, so congratulations. I okay. We'll, we'll actually we'll get into it later. I I I, I want to just like draw again draw attention to the fact that uh, I'm sorry. Don Kessinger is kind of like a very decorated, even outside of Major League Baseball. He's like a very he's been a very successful athlete. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about how his basketball skills kind of translated. But he's been like an All American, uh, in All SEC like. In a very competitive sort of athletic environment um, at, a, at a university level, who's very successful, and it's just kind of, I there's probably not a very easy way to access his college statistics, but I wonder if at some point he was a good hitter, or if uh, he yeah I saw a little bit about his college statistics, the very basic stuff, just like batting average, and I think he was good but not great. You just kind of wonder about like whether there was some kind of buffer or whether it truly was just like his defense and athleticism that made him initially enticing to the Cubs. You know, I think it's this classic um, Mendoza line question, uh, which is if you see someone who's an excellent defender, how much offensive value do they have to provide? And they, what they saw in him initially and throughout his career was someone who provided so much value with the glove that if he could be a marginally good offensive player, he'd be worth it. Um, yeah. And they saw him as being a marginally valuable offensive player. They thought he met the minimum standard, which he probably didn't for much of his career. But 
you know, that's with the with the benefit of hindsight. Yeah, you know, by nineteen sixty eight, I mean he signed in sixty four, uh, and by sixty eight he was the starting shortstop of the NL in the All Star game. Um, uh, at that point he was uh, putting up like one point three WAR season, which is pretty good. It's okay. Uh, I mean, certainly not All Star level. I think he obviously had a, had a lot of respect. People thought that he was very good. Yeah. Uh, 1969, he bumped that up to 3.6. That's his, that was his best year. Came in 15th in MVP voting. Uh, that season, he also set a single-season record for most consecutive games without an error by a shortstop, um, which is, I, I, I feel like in that category, is probably the hardest to achieve. Uh, the category of consecutive games without an error, it's the most difficult to do that at the shortstop position. Right, you have to get a lot of plays. It's also a record that gets broken. Uh, pretty frequently it was broken most frequently and recently in 2002 Mm. um it's currently held by a guy i've never heard of so you know take that achievement with a grain of salt i mean consecutive games without an error is still pretty good right i mean as we know errors fielding percentage is not an excellent um indicator of defensive value this is something else that has developed over the course of baseball history and i think the fact that he did not make a lot of errors probably was something that played into his reputation as an excellent defender yeah so 54 games not bad uh uh, good good uh, work i mean obviously he's uh he's a gold glover twice Mm -hmm. um and is generally considered to be one of the best shortstops of the late 60s and early 70s the position of shortstop is so weird because in my memory, it's it's very much colored by Derek Jeter, who uh, is kind of the model of an all-around good baseball player. Uh, that's been debunked a little bit in recent years, but, you know, the conception of Derek Jeter, and there's, there's not like a ton to, I mean, there's, you know, he's not, he's good enough as like a hitter and everything for me to think of shortstop as being like a hitting position. Um but it, one thing that I'm, I'm sort of coming to uh, terms with is the fact that for much of history and including like every year since Derek Jeter has retired and apparently every year before he even entered the league, uh, shortstop was again like a, a defensively focused position and not much of a hitting um, position. So you kind of have that to reckon with, I feel like. Uh, when, when you're talking about like the skill or like when you're talking about like best shortstops of all time. Um, you know, the, most of them are not Derek Jeter. Most of them are like scrawny nerds with good footwork. Yeah, I mean, traditionally, shortstop and, and catcher have been very light hitting, and that was I, that's another thing that leads to Don Kessinger's success. Is I think that was just kind of accepted out of the shortstop position, and it kind of comes in waves, you know, because we got Lindor right now and Simmons. But I I don't know um, if that's something that's gone forever. Obviously, it's the most valuable defensive position on the field. Certainly, it stands to reason that you can accept less offense from the shortstop position. So, the speaking on shortstops and their defensive prowess, we need to talk about um, this... I don't know what you call it, like a technique or a maneuver or something. The Jeter play. Uh, it came to be a trademark. It's so difficult because it's not actually... It doesn't feel like it's something that any one player can lay claim to. I think Derek Jeter can lay claim to it. Derek Jeter can lay claim. So what we're talking about is the jump throw from yep. the shortstop position, um, which is not exclusive to the shortstop position. You can see the play made from second base. Uh, it's more difficult. I mean, you can see a play made from third base, but the middle of the infield is where you're going to see, I feel like, the lion's share of these plays just because there's so much sort of space to both sides. 
uh, you'd never see it coming from first base and you would only see it at third base if it's like that very particular kind of hit which rides the foul line such that a third baseman has to make a tough play. Right, has to range to their right. Right. There's like these kinds of plays are most common in the middle of the infield. The, The most famous jump throw was made by Derek Jeter, which is why it's most commonly associated with Jeter. But... Don Kessinger's Wikipedia page, much like um, how uh, Jim Wolford's Wikipedia page claims that he uh, is the author of a famous baseball thing that is more commonly associated with the New York Yankee, um, uh, Don, Don Kessinger, it's claimed on his Wikipedia page. He became, like, the, what Wikipedia says specifically is that it became his trademark play, which is r- ranging to the right, which is to say going into left field to field the ground ball, then jumping and throwing against the body, yes. which Ferguson Jenkins referred to as the down pat. Uh, I had never heard of it referred to in that way. I had no association of Don Kessinger uh, with, with this maneuver. Or with it anything. Seems, again, right. <laughs> All respect seems, to Don, but... It seems difficult to... Uh, because it just seems like it's 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 kind of at the liberty of where the ball is hit and also like your natural athletic ability. I, but I find it hard to believe that no one was doing this before Don Kessinger. Uh, I agree with you. I don't know. It sounds just, like he just, was an athletic shortstop and maybe not even the best one. Maybe something else he has in common with Derek Jeter is a little bit more flash than substance. Just it's it's a thing about baseball that. It seems kind of difficult because when you think about like other sports, you can kind of have little signatures that you do really well. Mm -hmm. But apart from like pitches, like signature pitches, and I guess this specific thing, it does just doesn't seem like it's something that comes up enough to have um, to sort of gain traction. Yeah, a lot of the little flourishes you can have on the baseball field are things that are totally incidental, like Ozzy Smith Mm -hmm. doing a backflip. Or right. like a certain bat flip. Like mm. they're like, yeah, that's your thing, but it really doesn't have anything to do with baseball. Maybe like wind ups. Yeah. But again, this is this maybe. is the pitcher's mound. I think wind ups is actually a good one because some people have funny leg kicks. Or like batting stance. Batting stance and wind up are the, yeah, okay. the two that I, yeah, fair enough. that I would think you could make a signature. But this particular maneuver, common or uncommon as the occurrence might be, uh, was certainly uh, unique to Don Kessinger's playing style, as we talked about, he's an athletic person, kind of like a pure athlete, uh, good agility, good jumping skills, had played basketball. Harry Carey suggested that the reason he was so good at the jump throw was because he was good at basketball. Maybe. Yeah, good jumping. Yeah. Maybe. You know, I never got to watch him play. Me neither. I tried. I did try to find footage so I could see what he looked like when he was doing the thing, but there's no footage that I could find. It's interesting because he genuinely does seem to be a pretty famous player, but a little bit lost to the sands of history. Not famous enough. Didn't hit enough home runs. That's really all that counts. Mm, that's true. I truly like name a famous baseball player. Name a famous baseball player. Specifically, you're trying to look for one who didn't hit home runs. I mean, who wasn't a pitcher and who didn't hit a lot of home runs. I think your point is made. There are none. Everybody who's famous, at, like, I mean, maybe this is harder to ask of you because you know about baseball players, but I feel like if you ask anybody about a famous baseball player, it's going to be somebody who hit a lot of home runs. Right. They're probably going to name one of the all-time home run leaders, honestly. Yeah, I would think so. Um, or maybe like Joe DiMaggio. Right. Who also hit a lot of home runs. Hit, hit a lot of home runs. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah. But not not so for Don Kessinger. He had to make his bones in the field. Yeah, and he continued playing um, 13 seasons with the Cubs, after which he was traded uh, to the Cardinals. He did hit uh, one home run several more times in that stretch, uh, including 1972, which was his only other good year. Heck yeah. Um, and um, yeah, he got traded. Everyone seemed okay with it. Uh, he wasn't, didn't seem too bitter or broken up about it. Um, and he was actually okay with the Cardinals, although by that point, his lot of defense was not what it once was. And so they kept him around for a couple years, but traded him at the deadline back to Chicago, where he played with the White Sox for a couple years. The south side of Chicago. Yeah, a different, different bit of Chicago, but they still seem to appreciate him. They held a Don Kessinger day to congratulate him on uh, being Don Kessinger, or Kessinger. <laughs> Um, apparently it was a rousing success. He was enough of a cultural institution around Chicago at that point that that they threw him a day. And then, of course, notably, uh, Bill Vec, who was the general manager of the White Sox at that point, named him a player manager, and he was the last such in American League history. You don't see it. No, you literally do not see it anymore. (laughs) I feel like you could see it because of the way that the managerial position has been de-emphasized. I, I uh, disagree and, with you. I don't know. There's a lot of critique going around to the fact that like roster management and stuff like that is made at the general manager's level now. Yeah. Um, and there are also more coaches in the dugout to consider. There's a bullpen coaches and pitching coaches who are doing a lot of the manager's job. So they so, have less to do than they used to, but there's also way more scrutiny on them. They have to think a lot harder about every decision. Yeah. What if, what if they didn't though? Like what if, what if you just like, as a general manager or a person who makes those kinds of decisions said, like, we're going to make, you know, the, the baseball decision-making uh, part of that job, like a committee job in the clubhouse. And like, I don't know, Joey Votto is going to be the manager and that he, res- he has the respect to the clubhouse. And he's like the leader. What if you made the, the manager like the leader of the players? And then there was like a coaching committee. What does a t- what does a team captain do? Like, what is their role usually? That. But a team captain usually doesn't have actual power over the course of the the game. Um, no, probably not. I mean, I think I just think there's a way to do this, and like, I don't know. I'm I'm I I I I I have a lot of baseball energy that's gonna go into like fixing baseball this season. <laughs> oh, great! I can't wait to hear your point by point plan. Yeah. Uh. If I'm in charge, here's what we'll do: move all the fences back. Um, I'd like to see it. I think I think the idea of a player manager is really fun and funny. Um, I agree. I I like it as a historical oddity, um, but it will never happen again. Yeah, last player manager. He resigned his manager position at the end of '79. Why are you upset that he was replaced by Tony Larusa? Uh, just because it was so long ago. Tony LaRusso is an old man. I'm not surprised that Tony LaRusso is in his late 70s, but I'm just surprised he was in baseball for so long. Like, it's weird to me to be reading something that feels so historical and then see a present day name in there. In the That mix. was Tony LaRusso's first uh, uh, managing Big job. league managing gig, yeah. He had been managing the yep. AAA team before that. He was 34 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, Young. Don Kessinger, before he uh, resigned his position as manager, presided over one of the darkest days in American history as manager of the White Sox. Yeah, I wish we hadn't already been podcasting for five hours because uh, Disco Demolition Night is, uh, that's a whole topic. Yeah, he was he was the manager during Disco Demolition Night, which was a riot that occurred uh, in the White Sox Stadium when they decided to blow up thousands on thousands of disco records between the games of a doubleheader. 
uh, yeah. he decided to lock his players in the clubhouse wisely. Yeah, honestly, uh, appreciate the fact that baseball players were kept separate from all that nonsense because there's a world in which players engage with Disco Demolition Night. And <laughs> I mean, it's, it's sure that they like they, they also probably felt pretty negative things toward disco and disco culture being uh, white Americans in the 70s. But at least that, that those horrible opinions weren't revealed uh, at that point. Right, they were literally locked in the clubhouse, which is where those kinds of opinions belong. Yeah, whereas if this had happened in like 2017 or whatever, you'd certainly be hearing about Daniel Murphy standing on home plate and, you know, uh, destroying the cultural contributions of black and queer people in this country. Yeah, he Um, would say, yeah, disco music bad. We prefer rock music. Therefore, therefore, we have to blow up a lot of vinyl records. I, we really like don't have time to get. Into I know, all this, I know. It, well, let's talk about it next time. It's infuriating. Uh, <laughs> all right. So anyway, so that was Don Kessinger's contribution was keeping uh, his baseball players out of a political fracas. Uh, and then after he retired, he was the head coach of the University of Mississippi uh, baseball team uh, for a minute. Uh, his kids played baseball for you, Miss. Uh, his grandson, I believe, also played for UMass. I was reading an article from when his grandson was playing about, like, the Kessinger family mm-hmm. and how uh, much of a mainstay they are uh, in Oxford, Mississippi, which is nice. It's cool to set down baseball. He's a, he's a real baseball lifer. Absolutely. Sounds like he's he's got roots in Oxford, which is cool. Yeah. Um, now he owns, he owns a real a... estate firm. Great. Uh, and his grandson, Gray Kissinger, is in the Astros organization. Do we got anything else we want to say about Don Kessinger? No, I don't think so. I mean, just a, a a classic tater tot. We were pretty harsh on him here, but, you know, when we talk about the tater tot, this is the kind of player that we're talking about, someone who Absolutely. doesn't contribute a lot with the bat but finds another reason or another way to stick around the game. Fully. Uh, one of my favorite kinds of tater tot, I would say. Absolutely. I agree. Uh, I love a lifer. We all love a lifer. Um, just somebody who uh, manages to stick around. And that, isn't that all that anybody can hope for? Uh, I guess that's going to do it for us this week. Uh, I've got a snake fact for you. A fun one. Uh, the snake fact is uh, that the rainbow serpent is a creator god in Aboriginal Australian tradition. Uh, the most common rainbow serpent myth is the story of the Wawalog. According to legend, the Wawalog sisters are traveling together when the older sister gives birth and her blood flows to a water, water hole where the rainbow serpent lives. The rainbow serpent then traces the scent back to the sisters sleeping in their hut. Uh, He enters and eats their children. However, the rainbow serpent regurgitates them after being bitten by an ant, creating the native land. I I kind of filled that in because it was more complicated. Like, that was the creation event of the land on on which the aboriginals lived. So it's like their land creation story. Is that the... The snake threw up the land. I thought, okay. Uh, then the serpent proceeds to speak in the voices of the children. It speaks in the voices of the sisters that it ate. Oh. Oh. And teaches, uh, sacred rituals to the people living there. Yeah. I love a creation myth. Um, especially, uh, 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 creation myths that don't get a lot of attention, I feel are, uh, unduly not given a lot of attention because they tend to be more interesting. Uh, like, I can't remember which... Uh, but there are certain Native American tribes that believe that uh, Earth is uh, created on the back of a turtle, mm-hmm. which is yeah neat. Uh, I love a turtle. How do you feel yeah. about a rainbow serpent? 
I like a turtle. I like a snake. Um, I'm a, I'm big. I'm big into just about any reptile. I have to be honest with you. It's really, when we bump into amphibians, is kind of where we get where I get into problems. Yep. Yeah. We we did this over text, but we did rank the classes of animals, and yep. reptiles definitely rank above amphibians. You just got to make up their mind. That's not my issue with them. My issue with them is mostly that they're like weird. My issue with them is that they're 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 indecisive. Are you a frog or are you? I mean, are you a lizard or are you a fish? It's a frog. That's a lizard fish. <laughs> yeah, try again, frog. Come back to me when you're like better. <laughs> okay, that's it for us this week. You can um, uh, donate to Baseball for All. Uh, there's a link to that in your show notes. It's an initiative that gets girls involved in youth baseball. It's very important. You can follow us on Twitter at Tater Tots Pod. You can like us on Facebook behind the Facebook URL slash Tater Tots Pod. You can email us Tater Tots Pod at gmail.com. You can uh, join us every Thursday night streaming on Twitch. Uh, last week, Duncan ate 14 uh, uh, vegan tacos from Taco Bell, uh, and assuredly, something just as interesting will happen this week. We're playing Pong. Oh, that's right. We got to figure out how to play Pong <laughs> on Twitch. Wonderful. All right, so next time we'll be talking about Vern Law, who is the pitcher king of Tater Tots. That'll be fun. Vern Law is a pirate that I don't know a lot about, so we'll get to learn about him. And in the meantime, stay safe, enjoy the baseball, and we'll talk to you later. Right. Bye.